you guys can be seated here this morning. Um, as you guys know about me, um, I, I absolutely, uh, I, I love Christmas, I love everything about it, um, and uh, in, in this series, as we've been wrestling through and experiencing uh, the Christmas Psalms, or the Christmas songs, um, it's been interesting to me as I've kind of thought through um, some very, um, taken at face value, some Christmas songs or even some Christmas movies that um, when we really look past them to find the truth behind the truth, that there is an underlining uh, grievance or, or sadness in those, all right? Um, Pastor Justin and I were talking earlier about Noah's Ark and how, you know, it's not this like children's fairy tale um, that we've made it into. And a lot of times at Christmas, we have a tendency to make things into a fairy tale but while not pressing into the truths behind the truths. So case in point, um, have you ever thought about Christmas songs and thought about their real meanings? So the little boy who sings out, all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. Like, how'd that brother lose those? Right? But it's a jolly song about all the dude wants is his, his snaggles back. Right? Or, or the song, Grandma Got Ran Over by a Reindeer. Woo! Right? And it's this jolly tune, but Grandma's dead. She was killed by a wild beast. Right? Or the fact from the perspective of that child who actually sees his mama kissing Santa Claus. And that ain't her daddy, his daddy. He doesn't know that. Right? That we see like underneath this. I mean, we can't even sing, baby, it's cold outside anymore. Right? Is that right or wrong? I mean, when we think about movies, like Christmas movies, I love Christmas movies. We have a collection of Christmas movies. You think about, like, Charlie Brown's Christmas. While everyone is around us is in holiday cheer, um, the over-commercialization of Christmas has left Charlie Brown depressed and wondering if we have missed what Christmas is all about. That's the real theme of Charlie Brown's Christmas. White Christmas. Love White Christmas, huge Bing fan. White Christmas, how do we cope or come to grips when those we love are getting older and the anxiety of financial problems? That's White Christmas. One of my favorite movies of all time, not just at Christmas, is called It's a Wonderful Life. But let's face it, the real title is Life is Terrible. Elf. The longing to know and to be known and be accepted for who you are. Christmas vacation. Life never goes as planned. Don't create expectations that cannot ever be met. Home alone. Everyone has left me and everyone is out to get me. And my stuff. I must protect it. Right? And one of my personal favorites, Die Hard. We can't even have an office Christmas party without terrorists showing up. Right? Our, our tendency is to think about these songs 
and to think about these Christmas movies and just see them as this like, we kind of ignore the pain and the sorrow and the pain in these people's lives. Even the Christmas songs that we sang today, there was this underlying current of, of sadness, of grief, and the gospel invading us in the midst of that grief and in the midst of that pain and that sorrow. Today, we have, over the last several weeks, we've been working through Christmas songs or Christmas psalms. Uh, we've looked at a song of thanksgiving. We've looked at a song of of enthronement, meaning that God is king and that he's on the throne. And what does that mean for us? But today we're going to turn a corner before we come to Christmas and the celebration and the praise of Christmas that we're going to get to next week. But we can't, um, like many of us, we love Resurrection Sunday morning. And we kind of want to skip Friday afternoon and Saturday in order to get to Easter Sunday morning. And likewise, that's what we're trying to do at Christmas. Through gifts and, and through um, great food and through music. It's, it's like any time, you've probably heard me say this before, any time that I read the news around Christmas and something bad has happened, I'm like, what's wrong with these people? Nothing bad happens at Christmas. And yet we're constantly trying to ignore the realities of our lives with frosting and tinsel and lights and wrapping paper. And yet, simultaneously, for many of us, we need to get through the lament of Christmas before we can understand the praise of Christmas. Inside of uh, the book of Psalms, one-third of the Psalms are considered songs of lament. All right? Well, what is a lament? A lament is a, a feeling or expressing sorrow or grief. It's a, it's a deep, deep groaning. It is literally a complaining situation. And one-third of these songs, imagine, and, and, and I think we've done a disservice within the church by erasing lament from it, and even from our corporate gatherings, that we don't really have to know how to handle people who are going through really, really difficult situations. And yet, inside of the Bible... One-third of the Psalms are dedicated to this sorrow and expression of grief. An entire book is called Lamentations, which is an entire book on laments by none other than the weeping preacher, the weeping prophet, and his name was Jeremiah. I mean, how do we handle the entire book of Job if we as a church don't embrace grieving and complaining and, and sorrow as a people. Inside of this psalm, we see first here that lamenting leads us to cry out to God. Lamenting leads us to cry out to God. In, in chapter 77 of the book of Psalms, we see here in verse 1 that the author here, Asaph, if we don't really know what's going on in Asaph's life, but he's some sort of like music leader. He's a, he's a lead worshiper, and something is terrible going on inside of his life, and this is the song that he writes. It begins with him doing what in verse 1? I cry 
allow to God, allow to God, and, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord, and in the night my hand is stretched out without weary, wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. And so inside of Asaph's pain, he, he directs his cry, he directs his trouble, he directs his pain, he directs his grief, he, he directs his, his, his sorrow, he directs his complaint, uh, not to other individuals, but rather he does so to God. He brings his grumbling, he brings his complaint, he brings the, the dark night of the soul, he brings the reality of that moment to God, and he's even saying, when I, when I do this, when I'm crying out to God, he, he hears me, and in my day of trouble, I, I do this, and, and I, but my soul is, just refuses to be comforted. When you remember God, he moans. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, the Bible tells us, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in what? Time of need. Asaph, we don't know what's going on, and, and, and I, like many others, I think I first heard this from Tim Keller. He's like, anytime that we don't know the troubles of the writers of Psalms, then I always try to place myself into that and what I'm going through. And so that's kind of what we're doing here this morning. As we wrestle with the, the groaning of our spirits, and, and maybe you've never experienced this, and, and, and some of us, we've got a healthy dosage of it, so if you want some, hopefully... We can pour some out on you. We'll give you some of ours if you want to experience this. But it's also like if you haven't experienced it, what do we often say? Just wait. You will. And so Asaph, as we are, is, is crying out to God, but the, the, he's turning his attention to God, and he is struggling with God. He is struggling with God's character in the midst of his suffering. We sing a song here that is based on the book of Job. And in that song, in, in Job chapter 13, verse 15, this is, listen to what Job says with confidence. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet, I will argue my ways to his face. Though you slay me, I will hope in him, but I want you to know, God, my, my argument, my wrestling, I'm going to do it to your face. What a statement. And yet we can see the, the beauty of lament here. We can see the, the beauty of casting our cares, not, not before anyone else and expecting salvation from them like we are prone to do. But truly casting our burdens and our cares, our groaning, our complaining before no one else or ultimately before God. And though he is slaying you, 
You put your hope in the very one who is ruining you. And yet God, in his word, can handle as Job did, yet I will argue my ways to his face. And if you learn anything in modern culture, one of the things that we hate is, oh no, you didn't. You're talking behind my back, right? And yet we see from the scripture why it is so idiotic for us to speak badly about God behind his back. Why? Because it's impossible. Like, like he knows what's going on. So lament psalms beg us and give us the opportunity to be really, really honest with the Lord. Why? Because he already knows what's trickling through your mind. He already knows what's trickling through your heart. He already knows your grievances. And yet he does not call us to to endure this suffering in silence, but rather gives us permission in the book of Psalms, in Lamentations, in the book of Job, in these writings from a holy scripture. He invites us to bring them to the very throne room of God and to argue with God about the junk that is going on in your life. Lamenting leads us to cry out to God. There are several books I want to share with you, and maybe this week in our weekly email, I'll I'll try to send them out to you. But one of them, it's some of my friend's favorite book, and this is a great book by Paul Miller. If you've not read it, I would encourage you to do so. It's called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. He addresses this in this way. He says this, We think laments are disrespectful. God says the opposite. Lamenting shows you are engaged with God in a vibrant, living faith. We live in a deeply broken world. If the pieces of our world aren't breaking your heart, and you aren't in God's face about them, then all it says about you is that you've thrown in the towel. God can handle our groaning, God can handle not simply our grief with others. Do you get that? Like God can handle your grief with God. Your grief with God. And again, if you've not experienced this, man, that's what a measure of grace that you've been shown. But just hold on. But having a deep woundedness, not just toward a brother or sister or friend or a non-believer, but having a deep woundedness from God, and yet lamenting leads us to cry back out to that very God. The one that has orchestrated all things, the one that last week is still sitting on the throne, is inviting you as his son, as his daughter, to air your grievances with God. Second thing here that we see in this passage is that lamenting leads us to express our deepest sorrows and questions. Lamenting leads us to express our deepest sorrow in questions. Let's keep reading. Verse 4. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night and let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Listen to these questions. Will the Lord spurn forever? 
and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at the end for all times? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has his anger shut up his compassion? Inside of this song, we see that Asaph is, is saying that in his grieving, in his, in his moaning before the Lord, in his complaining before God himself, that, that literally it is so consuming of him that he cannot sleep. You ever been there? Or maybe you're like so many of us who don't necessarily have a problem sleeping, but you do have a problem finding rest. We're the most worn out people on the planet. And we sleep more. And yet this man, he's awake. His pain, his deepest sorrows. Listen to these questions again. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has, has God forgotten to be merciful? Has his anger withheld his compassion? I mean, these are not just questions like, can, can God make a, a rock so big he can't move it? This is not questions like, man, were there dinosaurs on the ark? Or is it old earth or new earth? Or, or when is Jesus coming back and, and how is he going to do this? No, these are questions against the very character and nature of God. It both says something about him. It both says, one, that this man knows of God. That he knows what God says about himself. And yet because of the pain and sorrow in his life, he's questioning God on those attributes. We see in David's example in Psalm 13 when he says this, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your, <coughs> excuse me, how long will you hide your face from me? In Psalm 6, 6, we see another lament here. I am weary with my, my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drink, I drench my couch with my weeping. Brothers and sisters, have you ever put on a good face in front of your kids only to, to go to bed and once the lights are all sh shut off, kind of throw the cover over your head, and you just have this moment, this moment of agony, this moment of, of deep pain, this, this, this questioning of God, how long, oh Lord, have you forgotten me? I mean, let's face it, if you've been following Jesus long enough, I know that the Bible says that he will never leave us or forsaken us, but it sure feels the heck like he has. 
There are two psalms inside of the, the book of Psalms that end all of the sudden. And they end bad. Imagine singing a song in worship. Jonathan gets up to leads us. Right? He gets up, he leads us, and the song abruptly ends, and this is the last phrase. In Psalm 39, 13, look away from me that I'm a, I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Or in Psalm 88, when it says, darkness is my closest companions. And both of those psalm writers are, are saying two different things. They're saying, look away from me. He's saying, God, look away from me so that I can smile again. Simultaneously, um, the, and the, the writer of Psalm 88 is saying, God, darkness is a better friend to me than you are. He's asking God the questions. Have you forgotten me? Have you forsaken me? Have you forgotten your promises? Have you changed? The question that we love, especially those who have lived lives in, in a lot of pain and sorrow, is, is just asking this question over and over and over again, like, why God? Why God? We get asked questions like my wife and I did when we found out about cash, about what sin did we commit that made cash like this as a form of punishment. And so you go home that day and you're asking questions like, God, what did I do? Wasn't there some other way, God, that you could teach me the things that you're trying to teach me through this pain and through this sorrow and through this grief? Isn't there some simpler, like more easy way of teaching me these exact same truths? Why? Why is everything so so hard for us. Why is it so difficult? Why is it so painful? Have you forgotten me? Like, is this worth it? I know that the Bible says that a bruised reed he will not break, but for some of us in this room today, it sure feels like he's breaking us. We wonder, God, do you see me? Like how much, how much more, God, are you going to place upon me? Have I not learned yet what you're trying to teach me? And yet, when we look at these from a, a, an enthronement perspective, when we look at this from God's perspective, who is the one who put these passages in the scripture God did some of you need to be freed up today to understand that God is the one that put them here like he can handle it and I'm, I'm so thankful that that all of the scripture is, is not just you know kind of 
lollipops and, and gumdrops. But that we have passages like this where real men and real women are wrestling with God. They're asking him really, really tough, tough questions. And yet God is, is saying, like, I, I got this. Like, I, I can handle your grievances. Like, I, I, I can handle your anger. I can handle your disappointment with me. It is through God's grace that he says that, like, like I'm your God and I can handle all of these things. Things And I would much rather you be directing them to me than, than trying to give me the silent treatment. It is better to come to God with these things than to ignore God with these things. And laments invite us, they give us permission to do those very things. The third thing that this passage does for us Lamenting leads us to choose to trust the gospel. Lamenting leads us to choose to trust the gospel. Notice here there's a shifting in the conversation here. His situation has not changed. But he's choosing to do something in this passage. And what does he choose to do? He says in verse 11, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all of your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. So he, he doesn't understand it. His circumstances are bad. They're, they're terrible. They're painful. They're overwhelming. And yet he's choosing to do something that though I feel like this and I feel like this toward you, God, I'm going to cling to what I don't really understand but what I believe to be true in spite of all of this garbage. He goes on in verse 13, your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders. And he continues on. And then in this last section here, verse 16 through 20 for time, I've got to speed this up just a little bit. It says, when the wait, the waters saw you, O God, when the, the waters saw you, they were afraid indeed. And, and the deep trembled, the clouds poured out like water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed in every sky, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightning lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook, uh, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, your, yet your footsteps were unseen, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So in the midst of this man's great pain, sorrow, grieving, lamenting, just this agonizing, this, this groaning that is, is beyond the use of even words. I, I don't even know what to say. I'm in so much pain and so much agony. I do not understand this, God. I do not know why you're doing this. Have you forsaken me? Ha, have you forgotten your promises? Are you not being compassionate toward me? Are you not being forgiveness? Why does everyone else have it so easy compared to my life? And yet he remembers something. And he clings to something that he wasn't even at, the Exodus. Asaph wasn't even there. And yet he clings to something that God did in the past as his only hope. 
that if God would lead the, the Israelites through those troubled waters and make way for them, then, then I'm going to cling to that truth as well for me. Even though it looks like hell on earth. Lamenting leads us to choose to trust the gospel. He transitions from focusing merely upon himself to focusing on what he does know about God. In Lamentations chapter 3, verse 23 through 24, it says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Now, at first glance, if you don't know what's going on in Lamentations, that just seems like, man, that's, that's a great passage, which it is. But if you've ever read the book of Lamentations, which I would encourage you to do, especially if you're going through pain and sorrow and suffering, is that's like one of the only two positive verses in the entire letter. So he says all of this stuff, all of this pain, all of this sorrow, all of this agony over the unbelief of God's people. And yet in some portion there, there's some sort of insight of the, that the Lord is my portion the Lord never ceases, therefore I, I'm going to put my hope in him. I'm going to put my trust in what I, I cannot see. And I'm going to lean not on my own understanding, but in all of my ways, acknowledge him, and he will make my path straight, even though my path is not currently straight. I'm trusting that God is going to do something. I'm trusting that God has done something. In the book, Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy, it says this, lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads us to trust. We see in the laments in Scripture... And when we look into the Christmas story, we see that one of the gifts of Christmas is, is an invitation to do this very thing. One of the gifts of Christmas is an invitation for you and I to lament, even though we got a Christmas tree set up in our living room. Even though the house is decorated and it, it's, it's filled with smells that that are not there the rest of the year of, of cinnamon and spice and homemade bread and desserts being made and, and great food that there's, you know, for us a fake fireplace on our TV screen and, and, and that music is playing throughout the house. We do all of these activities and yet simultaneously to understand the Christmas story, we must understand it as simultaneously a time of great joy. Rejoice! And yet a season of great sorrow. Don't skip the sorrow. Embrace it. The Christmas story reminds us not to cover over our greatest pains with gifts, but to realize that one of Christmas's greatest gifts is this opportunity to lament. 
See, brothers and sisters, the, the true, un authentic understanding of Christmas, the true joy of Christmas shines brightest against the darkest of backgrounds. Consider these things. By the time that Matthew is written, or, or Mark would have been written first, but by the time that, that, that John the Baptist shows up on the scene, from the, the book of, of Malachi to the New Testament experiences, them actual happening as events, there's been 400 years where God hasn't said anything to his people. 400 years. No Bible. Because see, God has always spoken to us. We're this side of the resurrection. We, we have the, the canon of Scripture. God is always speaking to you. He's given you a book. So we don't, or without that excuse. And yet between the book of Malachi and, and the birth of John the Baptist, God hasn't said anything. He has sent no prophets to his people. All right, again, do you got, we're not talking about four minutes here. I mean, I'm losing my patience right now driving down Scottsville Road. I'm trying to uh, avoid it like the plague, right? Because I, I don't want to wait, and yet God's people are, have been waiting for 400 years no canon of scripture besides the Old Testament, but no new prophets coming to tell them what they're doing wrong and how that they need to come back to God. He just turns them over to their ways. And is silent. The fact that anyone is still being faithful to God by the time of Jesus' birth is an illustration of remembering what God had done in the past do you get that the faithful remnant that we see in the birth narrative like how did any of those people be that besides the grace of God working in their lives because all they had to cling to was ancient stories of the people's history and how God moved in their lives because he wasn't speaking to them doesn't mean that he wasn't at work. But he wasn't saying anything to them. You think that leads to lament? Right? If you're in a relationship with anybody, I mean, how many of you have ever said this? Why are you not talking to me? Why are you giving me the silent treatment? Hey, look at me. Talk to me. Caesar Augustus is a pagan king, and he claims to be God, and he's sitting on the throne. You think that's reason to lament? The people in a, are oppressed people. They're in slavery and bondage. God's people are. You think that leads to lament? Zechariah, a priest, and his wife Elizabeth have no children because Elizabeth is barren. You think that leads to lament? Have you ever met people? Do you have friends who have fertility issues? The pain, the sorrow, the agony. When we have people in our 
our city who are selling their babies. And you've got men and women who love Jesus and can't have a baby. You know, I think that doesn't tick off people. Make them angry. Make them want to shake their fist at God. Mary, a virgin teenager, is now overwhelmed with the news that she's pregnant and will give birth to the Messiah. You think that causes a little anguish? I'm here to tell you, Ava went to a party last night and she came home proclaiming immaculate conception. We would have a problem this morning. How do you explain to mama and daddy, I'm pregnant with God's baby? How did that happen? I have no idea because we didn't do anything. But there's a baby growing inside of me. Explain that one. Ex explain it to your husband whom you've not been with. Culturally, imagine the scarlet A that's placed upon this young girl. That even the, the future husband of Mary, Joseph, is going to quietly divorce because of Mary's pregnancy. I've, I've met very few people, and I don't think I've ever met a Christian who has experienced a divorce, who said, that was a great experience. That was awesome. That was without pain. That was without sorrow. That was without agony. And we forget that inside the Christmas story. Months before Mary and Joseph walked, to Bethlehem he's heading toward divorce the next one crazy paranoid murderer Herod the king of Judea who's underneath Caesar Augustus sits on a throne oppressing many Jews he's so paranoid that he he has his own family members killed because he fears that they will take over his throne. He catches word through the wise men that the king of the Jews has been born and decrees that all male children under the age of two shall be killed. Forcing Joseph and Mary to become refugees from their own homeland. When it tells us that story inside the book of Matthew, it says in Matthew chapter 2, verse 17 through 18, then this was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah in verse 18. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no You ever had a friend or a family member who's lost a child? And that can be a miscarriage to an accident. It 
it causes deep, lasting sorrow. Brothers and sisters, Christmas is not always the most wonderful time of the year. It is not always a wonderful life. Let's face it, Jesus says that he is the Prince of Peace, and yet it doesn't seem so peaceful. Jesus is the light of the world, and yet everything seems rather dark. Lamenting allows us to to honestly acknowledge our brokenness and the brokenness of the world. Lament leads us to to crave for God to speak, for, for God to move, for an eagerness for the completion of God's redemption story. It, it leads us to, to beg out and to cry out to God like, I just need you to do something, Lord. Please do, do something. It appears as though you've you forgot me. Like, I mean, I mean, you can imagine all of a sudden when, when Zachariah is visited or, or when Mary is visited or when Joseph is visited or when John the Baptist is born that there is for that remnant of true believers in God through Christ that there is this relief of God. Finally, for 400 years, we've been begging you, asking you to speak to do something, do you not hear the cries of your people? And lamenting invites us to do that. How many times in the Old Testament do you read and he heard the cries of his people? See, there's value in crying out to God specifically because he's the only one who can change what you're going through. Christmas was not so silent of a night. We love to ignore the pain. I don't think that Jesus was born without any labor pains from Mary. There's this great song by Andrew Peterson he talks about. It's called Labor of Love. And in that song, he talks about how that there, like there, there's there's blood on the floor. There's crying. There was pain. There was sorrow. There was the curse of Eve that was experienced even in the birth of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, mission, I want us to understand that God sees our pain and he hears our laments. This Christmas, I I want us to celebrate, but I also want us to become a church that embraces lament. It's interesting, I was was talking through this and I was talking through it with, with with Galen earlier, and I told him that I would, I'd probably end up sharing this, but the Christmas season is, is really bipolar. It's, it's a very paradoxical experience. 
if you truly embrace it, if you truly read the story, if you truly see the understanding of, of the, the grand narrative, not just of Christmas, but of all of Scripture, that in one hand there is this great joy in celebration, but it, it doesn't come out without pain or without sorrow. Yesterday, Galen and Amanda, Galen um, laid to rest one of his, his childhood friends who, who's dying of a very aggressive cancer. Galen, several months ago or a month ago or so, went to go visit him because he now lives in Arkansas to see his friend for what would probably be the last time. Upon visiting with him, it became very clear that this man wanted nothing to do with Jesus. He was a self-professed non-believer. This past Saturday, that, that man died. While Galen and Amanda are at the Christmas party that we had here for a church, on their way home they get a call. And their nephew had been just killed in a car wreck. And yesterday, this all culminates with them going to a funeral for by every fruit that we can see that this man has gone to hell. And that was there yesterday morning. While simultaneously, yesterday afternoon, they're at their house watching their grandbabies open up their Christmas presents. In a single day, there was both death and there was life. That's lamenting. It's where those two worlds collide, brothers and sisters. And we've got to become a better, healthier church in both celebrating but also of embracing each other's lamenting. Getting, get over it is not something that should come out of our mouths. They just need to get over it. No, you need to, you need to be quiet because my mom won't let me say the other word that rhymes with shut and ends with up. No, you need, you need to be quiet. And in six shooting some Bible verse at our brothers and sisters in the midst of their, there's, there's a time for that. Let me ask you some questions this morning. What is causing you pain? What is causing you sorrow? What is causing you doubt? What is causing you anxiety? What is causing you depression? What are you questioning? And let me tell you this. Like, if you don't ever question God or have any doubts, then I wonder if you know him. Like, this is a church where it's okay not to be okay. This is a church where it's okay to have doubts. This is okay. This is a church where it is perfectly okay for you to stop wearing your mask. What's the dark night of your soul? Where do you feel abandoned? Where do you feel alone? Where do you feel lost? 
We even want to come to church, let's face it, and hear happy songs, uplifting sermons. We want to laugh because that constitutes a good sermon. Did he make us laugh? And ignore that we're broken. Engage with others just masking around like everything is okay. If we, if we cannot be honest with God and if we cannot be honest with each other in the church, then where can we be honest? Mark Vrogrop, he's the author of that, the book I quoted earlier, Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy. He says this, After our daughter's stillbirth, I struggled going to church and I was the pastor. It's not that people treated me unkindly or rudely. Rather, it seemed I wasn't on the same page. It felt as if there was no place for my pain. Sundays were filled with warm greetings and chipper small talk. Our congregational singing was upbeat and victory-oriented. Everyone seemed happy. However, my, my low-grade sadness and daily fight for hope created a minor key song in my soul. And I felt like I was singing solo. When you're the one in pain and when you're the one in sorrow, that can be a very lonely place. I don't know if I've ever said this publicly, but I've said it to my family. In October of 2005, when we found out about cash, something died in And I've never gotten it back. It died in me. It changed my personality. It changed my friendships. It, it changed the way I, I view money. It changed the way I view, I view stuff. I go to a funeral every single day in my pain and sorrow. Something died in me. I have never gotten it back. See, we try to numb our pains, don't we, through social media, through binge-watching Netflix, drugs, alcohol, food, sex, Think about this, this very moment that we live in where people are addicted to what we call what? Pain relievers. First time in known history that I know of, probably in the last hundred years, where we've become addicted to painkillers. Now, we're, we're not talking about people living out on the streets that get addicted to this. We're talking about people in good homes, good values, good, good moral Christian people who probably got hurt, got legitimately hurt, and then to cover up and numb the, the physical pain, they were given something called a pain reliever only be, to become addicted to a pain reliever. addicted to trying to numb all of this. 
pornography, obesity, entertainment, overworking, athletics, working out, food, all, all of these things. And just pastorally, I want to say something to you. Uh, this, this year has been overwhelming. Not, not, not just for, for my family, but, but so many of, of my friends, so many of my family members, so, so many of you. If, if you could think about 2019, just for so many of us, even in this room, it has been just really tough. There's the loneliness of prolonged singleness. There's the long-term care for the parent, there's broken marriages, there are fertility issues, there have been miscarriages, there, there are death of, of loved ones, there's struggles in the adoption process, there's becoming foster parents and all that that, that entails in that. There's been, been drug addiction, addiction, there's been abandonment, there's been alcoholism, there's been lying, stealing, slandering, gossiping, there, there have been employment issues, there have been wayward children. We've got people and friends in our, in our family group that are struggling with just major chronic illnesses. And yet God sees our pain and hears our laments. Brothers and sisters, in your pain, fight the drift of running from God. Because if you've been in this circle long enough, if, if I've learned anything in pastoring, is that, that grief will either lead you astray or it will lead you to cling to God. I'm hurt, I'm hungry, I don't understand, but I refuse to walk away from you, God. I'm bringing my petitions, I'm bringing my questions, I'm bringing my complaints. In, in the face of, of great pain, we can see an even greater God. Brothers and sisters, if, if it was not for the belief in the resurrection and the return of Jesus, then I would have no hope. And yet, because of those things, whatever died in me on October of 2005, because of my faith and trust in Jesus, one day that will be brought back to life. Do you understand that truth? And if it wasn't for that hope, I, I, I would not be here this morning. Like, I love you all. Let's go have some coffee. Let's not do it here. Let's go eat. Let's go hang out. But if it wasn't in a future hope in that, that Jesus is going to resurrect whatever was broken in me, in my sorrow and in my grief and in my complaint and in my just agony and anger toward God as I've been shaking my fist at him for 14 years, if it wasn't for the hope and belief that Jesus is who he says that he is and that he brings dead things to life, I would not be here. You're not that awesome. And this job is not that good. But it's a belief that Jesus resurrects the dead. The very tears will be wiped away from your and I's faces by the very hands of an almighty God. And that's where we find our hope. That's where we find our security. We don't worship Jesus based on how we feel about him. 
Lamenting is an act of worship. Did you know that? We don't worship Jesus because of how we feel about him. We worship Jesus because of who he is. In the darkest of moments, days, weeks, months, and years, we do not cling to our emotions, but we we cling and we trust to Jesus and what he says about himself. Jesus, the man of sorrows. Jesus, the one acquainted with grief. So thankful for the Garden of Gethsemane and the cross, where what do we see Jesus do? Lament. Why are you doing this? God, if there is any other way. If there is any other way, God. Isn't this what Jesus says in the garden? Then then let it be done. If not, then I'll drink it. What what do we see Jesus doing? We we see this man of sorrows, the one acquainted with grief. We we see him in a garden. He's he's becoming so oppressed and, and just so crushed by the weightiness that he is going to drink the full wrath of God. And he is lamenting before God. I can't, God, this is so hard. I'm being crushed under the weightiness of the mission that you have for me. Even so much that he he goes to the cross, and as he goes to the cross, what does he quote? A lament. Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy. Death and life. And as Jesus hangs upon the cross, that's what he quotes. He doesn't hang on the cross saying, your love endures forever. He hangs on the cross as one who has been forsaken by God. And he cries out to him. Lament allows space for the believer to go through seasons when they they don't have the feels. When they say things like, I'm going to pray, I'm going to read, I'm going to give my time, talent, and treasure to the church. I'm going to sing. I will not quit even though I feel like quitting. I'm in a desert and yet I'm going to pursue an oasis. I don't have the feels, God. But I love you and I will love my neighbor. Even though I don't understand why you are doing what you are doing. Even when you pray to God, darkness is my closest friend. The one you are praying to is God. The only one who can fully experience the pain and sorrow is Jesus Jesus was really abandoned. Jesus was really forsaken. Jesus was really left and abandoned by both his father and his friends. But I love this quote by Tim Keller in closing. Jesus Christ experienced the darkness as his only friend. So in your darkness, you can know, brothers and sisters, that Jesus is still your friend. Jesus was truly abandoned so that you will only feel abandoned. 
and you can know that God is still there. Brothers and sisters, this morning, hope is not found in knowing why, but in whom. And his name is Jesus. May our lamenting long, long for heaven. May it create in us a longing for rescue that is still to come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you, Father, that you resurrect dead things. Thank you, Father, that you can hand, handle our vulnerability, that you can handle our rawness, that you can handle our pain and our sorrow, that you can handle our lamenting, Lord, the deep groanings, Lord. Your word even says, God, that we, when we're in such pain and such agony, just the, the groanings of the Lord, that the Holy Spirit even begins to, to pray for us and utter what we cannot even get out of our lips, Lord. There's so many of my friends in this world, so many family members in this room, God, who are experiencing so much pain, so much sorrow, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would empower them through the power of the Holy Spirit to fight the drift, to stray, to fight the drift and the desire and the lure of, of walking away. That, Lord, that they would cling more to you, Jesus, Lord. See them, Lord. Hear them, Lord Jesus. Hear the cries of your people, God. We are people in agony. May we cling, God, to life in the midst of death. Lord, this Christmas, may we not, God, just overlook and forsake the sorrow. Lord, by embracing the sorrow, we can see how precious the joy of Christmas really is. Lord, pastor us, shepherd us, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.